This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. The biggest threat to American national security. The Russian motherland sustains military attacks. Cold War in the Balkans. A new weapon for Iran. And a discussion about Turkey's new leader. The same as the old leader. These stories and more on today's Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. I'm Philip Nice and I speak for our panel of trumpet authors as well as myself when I say that you are appreciated. Thank you for taking the time to listen, to share this time with us, and to keep your mind in the news. It takes effort to keep up with the news and to filter through it, and that is what our aforementioned authors from thetrumpet.com are happy to help you with. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Hello. And this week we start with one of the biggest possible issues we could get into because of how it will affect Europe, because of how it will affect China, how it will affect Asia in general, but its epicenter is in the United States. Uh, But before you update us on this, though, Andrew Miller, give us a quick list of the other major developments in your region, which is Anglo-America. Yeah, some pretty shocking things going around the Anglo-American region this week. The the Globe Theater in England is now actively teaching that Shakespeare was a racist. Uh, The Target grocery store here in the United States has lost $10 billion uh, in stock prices this week following a conservative boycott after they released a transgender-friendly kids' clothing line. Uh, And the House Oversight Committee chairman, James Comer, is now uh, warning that Barack Obama knew all about the Biden family's shady business dealings while he was in office. So we'll look for more updates on those uh, stories in the future, but now hit us with the main story from Anglo-America. Yeah, well, as of last Saturday, we actually have a debt ceiling deal now. Uh, The uh, Democrats and Republicans in Congress have been fighting over this for weeks as to whether they were going to raise the debt ceiling or not. I guess surprise they 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 did as they pretty much always do or actually they um, temporarily suspended the debt ceiling so it actually doesn't exist for a while. Um, But yeah it is a big story just to do with um, like the financial future of America. Uh, a number of like the MAGA Republicans, uh, Steve Bannon uh, primarily among them, uh, are really coming down on House Speaker Kevin McCarthy hard uh, for basically betraying the Make America Great Again movement with his weak negotiations. Um, uh, basically, what he had uh, done here is he did... Um, he did claw back about $20 billion in IRS funding. He got back about $30 billion in unspent COVID relief funds. Uh, he cut n- non-defense discretionary spending slightly uh, and limited discretionary spending in 2025 to 1%. So he... Um, he clawed back a little bit of money, but but not much. And actually, here to probably explain it better than uh, than I am right now uh, on exactly why um, his meager uh, clawbacks are kind of an illusion. We'll have a clip from Senator Mike Lee over his take on the the debt ceiling agreement. 
the meager offerings of the Biden-McCarthy deal are profound. First, House GOP leadership proclaims that the Fiscal Responsibility Act will save $1.5 trillion over a 10-year period through the two-year CAPS deal. But see, Madam President, therein lies the deception. The supposed savings are largely, in fact, almost entirely illusory. The bill contains a mandatory two-year CAPS deal for the discretionary spending. But in reality, the spending limits for the other four years, the out years, are unenforceable and easily waived, in fact, easily ignored. It's a shell game of sorts, a carefully orchestrated act to create the false illusion of savings. Okay, so as you heard in that clip right there, the <laughs> you can hear that there was a debt, like a cut deal, then make it seem like America's saving money. They're not saving money. They're just, uh, they were going to go a certain amount into debt, and now they're going to go a little bit less than that amount into debt. Uh, a trick I like to do to make this a little more real to people uh, is to slash eight zeros from the official statistics uh, and make it seem like the American government's a family. So those numbers here, if the American government was a middle-class family, <laughs> that family would be earning $48,000 a year and spending $62,000 a year. That means they're putting about $14,000, almost $14,000 on their credit card this year, even though they already have $350,000 on that credit card. Their interest bill for that credit card this year is $6,400. Uh, and they just decided to slash about $1,500 from their budget. So granted, if it's the Republicans that wanted to slash the $1,500, that's better than not slashing $1,500. Uh, but when you're planning to go $14,000 into debt this year, and now you're going to slash $1,500, you're still going $12,500. Uh, into debt with money you don't have. So you're you're basically heading towards bankruptcy ever so slightly slower than you were before. So the debt ceiling is a law, and if the United States exceeds the amount that it's set at, then it risks or it will default. Um, and that debt ceiling cannot be changed without an act of Congress, and that's what this, this uh, conflict has been over. How long is the debt ceiling suspended and what are what are we really talking about why is this such a major story and not just a you know minor financial one uh well really it's a long-term trend story the, the, what they did different this time is they actually did temporarily suspend the debt ceiling so it doesn't actually we don't have a debt ceiling right now and we might not have one for another year or two um because that they, they couldn't decide as to how high to raise it they usually every time this comes up they just raise the ceiling um, and I don't think there was any question that they were going to raise the ceiling because they always do. And if you don't, you're kind of in default where you owe more money than you're legally allowed to owe. Um, but the bigger question as to whether they raise the debt ceiling this week is just a long-term 100-year trend of spending <laughs> more than you make consistently. Um and so now with uh, the debt's $31 trillion, $31.5 trillion, uh, GDP is, I think, only like 23 or 
four trillion dollars. So we owe we owe more than the, our economy produces in a year, uh, which historically is kind of at a bad point where it's really hard to come up with <laughs> a nation that's gotten to that point and actually gotten back from it. I think Britain did it like right at the beginning of the Victorian era and they basically just the wealth from the trade of the colonies where it helped them to be able to pay that off. But it, but usually once you've passed that 100 um that 100% point it's really difficult to get back from that because you get to the point where you're just the amount of interest uh you owe on the debt is consumes so much of your tax revenue that you just can't you can't escape the death spiral. And there were some fairly famous downsides to Britain um paying off its debt you know it i think it decided to raise a, a, a taxes slightly on a few colonies especially some in north america <laughs> somebody spilled their tea and Cause um, effect. <laughs> probably some knock-on effects america wouldn't like to experience right now so is this just uh, andrew miller is this just financial news i mean should i really worry about interest rates and you know government uh, negotiations just if i'm a banker or maybe if i'm an investor well yeah uh, getting back to that i guess personal family finance example it's like when you're spending beyond your means it's it's kind of one, it's a dangerous position to be in cuz it's kind of something where it doesn't feel like much is awry until you go bankrupt <laughs> Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, things go from very good to very bad, very fast. Um, and so America nations go bankrupt just like, uh, just like people do. And, um, in which case when you go bankrupt and then like all of a sudden China and Japan and other nations aren't lending you money, so you can't borrow money anymore. And, uh, you either have to print it and risk hyperinflation um, where groceries are just spiraling or just raise tax rates up to where like middle and lower class people can barely make ends meet. And so eventually when to get to that default standpoint, I mean, this is something that will definitely really hurt, um, consumers, uh, and just as importantly, uh, upset the geopolitical world order. We've talked, uh, on this program a number of times before about, uh, Herbert Armstrong's probably his most famous personal prophecy where he was looking at prophecies in the Bible about a European superpower actually invading America and carrying a people away as slaves. Uh, and then looking at like, well, how is, <laughs> how is, um, how is Europe going to defeat America, which currently has the most powerful military on earth and saying that really it looks like the most likely way that could happen is a huge financial crisis that basically just resets the the board. America can't afford to have the most powerful military on earth anymore because uh, it's been running deficits for decades. Nations aren't lending it money. It's trying to get money through printing and taxation. Uh, but then that makes everything so much more expensive and your tax bill so great that um, you've got riots in the streets because people um, – people can't make ends meet and it gets to uh, really like an end of western civilization type scenario uh, that can happen almost overnight <laughs> when uh when just the the source of cheap money uh dries up i think another danger here is just what it says about america and britain we're in the same boat but about our political system 
Like, I think this time period we're living through now is going to be utterly baffling to people in the future. Like, this is so obviously a, ca a catastrophe. We're so obviously about to smash the car into the wall at high speed. Like, there is no doubt whatsoever that what we're doing is unsustainable and it's going to go horribly, horribly wrong. And people will look at this and they will be unable to comprehend how we didn't realize that and why nobody seemed to do anything about it. Because it's it's not just a republic a democrat problem it's republicans going along with it and it's like look if you can't even deal with an incredibly obvious crisis that's come how are you going to be able to deal with something that pops up tomorrow that we don't expect it, um, it feels to me and this is just my own perspective but it feels to me that once people get to washington and they see what's going on i think they've already realized it can't be saved and we're just living on borrowed time let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die that's the impression i get well there are plenty of countries in the world that never mind people in the future looking back and seeing like how do we get to this point there are plenty of countries pretty important countries today that are looking at the u.s financial system and saying we want out i've i've talked on this program before about saudi arabia and them trying to uh, decouple their oil trade from the dollar you have um We've, we've talked before about Russia and China uh, uh, exchanging trade with each other in rubles. Um, Russia and India, we're talking about exchanging trade in rupees. That's been suspended. And, of course, there's other ramifications about that, like the sanctions of Ukraine and, and whatnot. But regardless of whether there are other factors, it still stands that the important powers, the important economies of this world are looking at the U.S.-based financial system, the dollar – based financial system and they're saying we want out i mean even like the you look at speaking of europe the whole concept of the euro it's basically now germany and france and italy and all these countries trade with each other without the dollar technically it's their own currency but it's still separate countries that used to be part of a dollar-based international system they're now trading with their own alternative dollar you could say and I think a lot of people forget that the power the dollar has, a lot of it just comes from the fact that everybody else uses it. Who's going to want to use a currency that is worthless? Who's going to want to deal with a currency from a country that will never pay you back its bill? Then that impacts a whole lot of other things, impacts supply lines. We were talking about you know, no food on the table, how much of our food, how much of our uh, energy resources we import. America could become self-sustaining if it wanted to, but it never really does. And nobody's uh, going to settle for, say, maybe two types of fruit on the supermarket shelf and just base your uh, uh, grocery budgets on that. It could be a lot worse than that. We could have empty shelves altogether. But, and it's just interesting to me how much of this comes back to trust. People demand the dollar in other countries uh, – two countries that neither one of them is the United States use United States dollars for the reason that not just because the United States is powerful, but because they trust the United States not to manipulate its currency as much as other nations uh, do. We are betraying that trust right now. And, uh, and in a, in so much debt that we will never be able to get out of it. 
Right. When we set up the uh, the current world financial system at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, after World War II, America very quickly became the biggest creditor nation in the world and maintained that position for quite a while, I think up until the 80s, uh, and then when they lost it. And now we're by far the world's biggest debtor nation. We're not the biggest creditor nation <laughs> anymore, uh, which is prophesied as well. We talked a little bit about Mr. Armstrong's uh, most famous personal prophecy. There's also another uh, specific prophecy about blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy 28 verses 43 through 44. Uh, that says, uh, foreigners shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to them. It used to be we lent to the foreigners, and we didn't borrow. Well, we borrowed a little bit, but it's uh, but now that that switched to where we don't we don't lend much to other nations, but we definitely borrow. <laughs> we definitely borrow from the other nations, and so that that prophecy has been fulfilled. Uh, in a pretty dramatic way. And uh, some of the more clear-eyed analysis, uh, Admiral Mike Mullins among them, are warning that our debt is actually the biggest threat to America's national security. Uh, and we actually have a reprint article titled The Biggest Threat to America's National Security uh, that's written by um, the Trump managing editor, Joel Hilliker, uh, and it, it talks a bit about what uh, Admiral Mullen said and then goes through uh, those prophecies in more detail as well about how uh, how our national debt was prophesied uh, and it is really leading to a circumstance where we will not be able to defend ourselves from foreign enemies much longer. So this is more very important, not just for stockbrokers and bankers, but for every American, the biggest threat to America's national security. A financial crisis in the United States will change the world, and the United States is in a major financial crisis, a terminal financial crisis. Now to Jeremiah Jacques. Jeremiah, your region is Asia, which economically and in other ways is rising in power. Yes, yeah, that's right. And uh, and it was another significant week for developments in Asia. One uh, interesting story is that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Russia's Wagner Group is showing no sign of standing down in his feud with Russian President Vladimir Putin. So this is the uh, the warlord who we spoke about last week, who went on TV saying that if Putin doesn't start achieving more in the war on Ukraine, then he'll probably be ousted. That was last week. And now this week, Prigozhin seems to have escalated the feud even further by giving another video address, this time sitting in front of the colors of Ukraine's flag. And in this address, he actually praised Ukraine's fighting spirit. And uh, he also threatened to pull Wagner forces out of the war if Putin doesn't support him more. So, you know, as I mentioned last week, it's hard to see how this man can keep on saying all of this without being served a cup of some of Putin's famous recipe <laughs> of uh, polonium tea. But there was actually a fascinating bit of analysis this week from George Friedman. He's the Stratfor founder, the current head of Geopolitical Futures. And he talked about this principle in Russian military doctrine called Maskurova. And you can hear the word mask in that term, Maskurova. Friedman defines it as the use of various deceptions and denials to mask true intentions in Russia's military doctrine. And Friedman goes on to discuss, you know, aspects of this apparently blundering war and the feud between Prigozhin and Putin and some other instances of what appear to be failure on Russia's part. And Friedman says, what if a lot of this is for show? What if a lot of this is deception that's intended to distract? What if it is Maskarova? Um, 
Friedman admits that the case for that is kind of weak and that most likely Russia is just too mired in corruption to perform well, but it's still an interesting possibility. Another small story here is about Dmitry Medvedev. He was the president of Russia, at least on paper, about a decade ago. He's still high up in the government. And on Wednesday, he said the UK is now waging a war on Russia. He called um, the UK Russia's eternal enemy. He basically said that by giving Ukraine weapons... The UK is, quote, leading an undeclared war against Russia. So it's more of the kind of uh, unhinged vitriol that we've come to expect from Medvedev. But it shows, I think, just the urgency that many in the Russian government are feeling. A couple of big China stories as well. First, Chinese spy ships invaded Vietnam's exclusive economic zone, and they're apparently refusing to leave. Then not far from there, a Chinese fighter jet flew just about 400 feet in front of an American reconnaissance aircraft. So just brazenly aggressive. This forced the U.S. plane to go through the Chinese jet's turbulence wake. So very dangerous and unlawful. And then at the same time as these provocations were happening, Chinese leader Xi Jinping called on his top security officials to start planning for, quote, worst case scenarios. So he he wants his military to be ready to counter any kind of threat, internal or external. And so they're preparing to, uh, you know, confront the, the worst case scenario. And then a, a final short one I'll mention here is about both Russia and China, as well as Brazil, India, and South Africa. These five nations make up the the uh, economic bloc called BRICS, and their foreign ministers are meeting right now in South Africa to basically find ways to bypass the U.S. dollar and to coordinate on a whole range of issues that will help them to challenge U.S. global hegemony. So what would you say, uh, if, if none of those are, what would you say is the main story from Asia this week? Yeah, I would say the biggest one is that uh, despite setbacks that Russia has faced, the Russians are really ramping up their missile and drone attacks in this war. Uh, in the last month, there have been 15 attacks using Russian missiles and Iranian drones, and that's just on one city, the, the capital city of Kiev. So you're looking at basically one major attack on Kiev every 48 hours. And many of these individual assaults are carried out with, you know, dozens of missiles and drones. So it's a great deal of firepower that's being used here, and most of them are striking civilian targets. One of these this week was also a daytime strike, which is very unusual. Normally, these kinds of assaults are carried out under the cloak of darkness. Um, But this one was in the morning, actually just after a big nighttime assault. So it really caught Ukraine off guard. And that was the point. You know, the point of all this is just to maximize the fear of the people. Ukraine is able to shoot most of these down thanks to Patriot air defense systems and other advanced systems, but around 10% of them do typically evade defenses and hit some kind of target. So even though Ukraine has that roughly 90% success rate in interceptions, that still adds up to dozens of missiles that are getting through and doing a great deal of damage. Uh, The last strike on Thursday injured several people and killed three, including an 11-year-old child. And actually, even when a missile or drone like this is shot down, that's still a dangerous situation with, you know, exploding debris, crashing down on civilian areas, houses and businesses. Some of the photos of these interceptions, they they show just uh, quite a lot of destruction. And it does cause fear among the people living in Kiev. So it's uh, it's quite similar to what happened back in the early 1940s 
with Nazi Germany bombing London. You know, the Germans were frustrated at that time by the sea that separates Germany from Britain. They weren't quite sure how to militarily defeat the British. So Hitler ordered this indiscriminate bombing of London, just pummeling London's residential areas and industrial areas with these uh, air attacks relentlessly. The Nazis hoped that that would make the British fearful enough to kind of demoralize them into a surrender. And what we have with Russia right now is quite similar. They're not quite sure how to militarily defeat the Ukrainians. So they're hoping that this terror tactic will demoralize the people and make them want to give in. But of course, we know from history that it did not work with the Brits in the 1940s. They had their famous stiff upper lip and, uh, you know, keep calm and carry on. And it's not working now. If anything, this terror campaign is just invigorating the Ukrainians and redoubling their resolve to get the invaders out of their country. And then there was also news this week of a second incursion into Russia by Russians who are fighting against the Putin regime. So these are Russians, but they're fighting alongside Ukraine. They call themselves the Freedom of Russia Legion. And twice now in the last week or so, they've carried out raids from Ukraine into the territory of Russia. It's just small groups of soldiers, but they're gaining more recruits and they claim that they'll, you know, liberate Russia entirely from Putin's regime. So it's mostly just a headache for Vladimir Putin because Russia has thousands of miles of border. Most of it isn't terribly well guarded or even guarded at all. But with incursions like this happening, he's having to find more soldiers to better guard the borders. And of course, soldiers are something that he doesn't have many of right now. But I think that uh, all this just shows us that it remains very important to keep a close eye on this war and on everything that Russia is doing in general. And that's largely because there is a, a passage of Bible prophecy, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, that trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry says is talking about a specific Russian leader. It's an individual who will lead a huge block of Asian countries in the near future. And Mr. Flurry says this is describing Vladimir Putin. So, you know, we can't say for certain what all the specific outcomes of this current war will be. But even if Russia isn't able to seize and hold everything at once, Mr. Flurry says it will not push him out of power. And in fact, he will grow more powerful and soon be leading an exponentially larger army that includes forces of other countries as well. The Prophesied Prince of Russia, you can read that on thetrumpet.com slash literature. The Prophesied Prince of Russia, uh, that's a remarkable... Uh, thing to say with everything that's going on with uh, even Vladimir Putin himself uh, when he does attend different uh, conferences seemingly uh, not in full health uh, but then you you wonder is that a mask or is it not uh, for years now uh, editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said this man is prophesied to very much stay in power and as you said in lead not only Russia but uh, much of Asia as well. So that's the prophesied Prince of Russia, thetrumpet.com slash literature. Next, we'll go over to Europe and get an update from Richard Palmer. Yes, Spain called snap elections this week. So they'll be going to the polls in just a few weeks time. This came after the Spanish socialist leader uh, did quite badly in several local elections. Uh, it's a bold move to then do badly and then hold national elections to try and turn this around. But uh, we'll have to see. This is 
continuing in that same trend that we've seen where you've got had a rise of an extreme left party you've had a rise of vox that is kind of like this fringe right party in spain that has upset local politics so you know, we've been watching this trend across europe and ireland announced or leaked out that they would be sacrificing 200,000 cows on the altar of climate change the government wants that many cows culled over the next three years uh, as they try and uh, reduce global warming or um, greenhouse gases etc uh, but it's uh, just continuing part of this this kind of war on agriculture and particularly war on meat that uh, we're seeing around the world but the main story you're going to bring us is straight out of europe's powder keg that's right the balkans the place where world wars have a history of um kicking off where you've got a situation here um where the uh, so you've got kosovo it's broken away from serbia to the serbs kosovo is the heart of their kind of historic country this is where you had some of their kind of their like founding battles and things like this were fought and uh they don't recognize kosovo breaking away so you had some elections that were that took place in kosovo for um mayors and, and like a regional election and the serbs because they don't recognize kosovo and, and they oppose this they boycotted these elections you had at these elections uh an impressively low three four percent turnout uh and so then you know, the people that won these elections with that vote from the, the very small minorities of three or four percent were Albanians, ethnic Albanians. And so you have the situation where you have ethnic Albanians then being elected mayors of regions that were majority Serb. The elections went on as normal in kind of the majority Albanian areas with, with more normal turnout. And Kosovo tried to put these mayors into office this week. This led to pretty big protests this led to uh, even violent clashes with uh with nato forces and it's a situation that is rapidly escalating nato is talking about sending more troops to the area uh serbia is sent some of its soldiers uh, to to the border and everyone is uh, watching very closely to see what happens next so the Balkans can be an easy, easy place to overlook there uh, between Italy and Turkey, uh, there by uh, Greece. But why is it that you've brought this to us as the main story from, from Europe this week? The biggest thing going on in Europe right now is the relationship between Germany and Russia, I think, in terms of geopolitical significance. And the balkans is right at the heart of that i think the other major geopolitical thing of significance over the last 10 20 years you know is germany cementing its dominance over europe and what happens in the balkans is essential to both of those trends i think you know the timing of this is fascinating because we've kind of said all along look vladimir putin if europe doesn't play ball vladimir putin has the option to to make the balkans explode and uh, to cause Europe to cause Germany a lot of problems here and that Germany and Russia have probably done a deal over the Balkans. Now you know, you've got a, this this war going on in Ukraine. And in this case, I mean, it kind of looks like the, the, the Albanians, the Kosovars are the ones instigating this violence. It 
from what everything I've seen, it doesn't look to me like this is Vladimir Putin playing the Balkans card. He tends to have links more to towards the Serbs and especially with the, with the Serbs in Bosnia. Uh, but that is ab- that relationship between Germany and Russia is absolutely the backdrop of everything that that happens in the Balkans. Germany just about unilaterally came along and broke up Yugoslavia. This was the first massive example you had of Germany kind of acting in an aggressive geopolitical way after World War II. So in 1990, they came along and they were the big movers and shakers uh, behind the breakup of Yugoslavia. The United States, Britain, France even, they all were kind of all in favor of just leaving Yugoslavia where it was. And it was Germany that that sh- that that did the lion's share of the work in shattering it and causing these uh, all these different Balkan wars that you see. And since then, they've been kind of absorbing it bit by bit and uh, drawing more of it into uh, into the European Union and where they've basically become kind of German client states within the European Union and even helped Germany cement its dominance over the European Union because now they've got nations that depend on Germany for their independence, their economy, they vote the way that Germany wants them to. And so you know, this is the backdrop to everything everything that is happening here. And I think this makes it very important to, to watch and to see, well, what different agendas are at play here? Is Vladimir Putin, as this kind of plays out, is he going to step in to try and cause problems for Europe? Could this be something that could be used to get this very public, open break between Germany and the United States and to maybe shift Germany away from its kind of trying not to get really involved while appearing to back Ukraine stance. Uh, possibly. And maybe this is this is Vladimir Putin's way of reminding Germany, hey, look, we had a deal. We had a deal. You were going, you know, we stood by and we let you dismember Yugoslavia. We didn't get super involved. We haven't fought back against your takeover of our ally. You've got to do your part, though. Otherwise, we might rethink some of that. Uh, and then also, this may provide Germany with an opportunity. You know, more NATO forces are going now, going into Kosovo now. More NATO forces into this area. So, could this be? They've already divided and conquered a lot of this, but could this be an opportunity for Germany to get more control over that region? Uh, so, I think this is a case of watch what will happen more than watch what has happened. Uh, but there's a lot of big prophetic trends. And this area in the past has really exposed the rise of Germany and this power that is talked about in the Bible in Revelation chapter 17 that's been underground and that it's been hidden. You, know, you zoom in on this part of the world that a lot of people maybe aren't particularly interested in, and you see that power breaking away from the underground and uh, up for, or rising up from the underground and doing some pretty violent pretty dramatic things. And that's something Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry exposes really clearly in his little booklet, Germany's Conquest of the Balkans. And that gives all of the background to this conflict and shows how, you know, we talk about Germany rising from the underground and being dangerous. You get real proof of that when you look in detail at what happened in what used to be Yugoslavia. If I may, as an ethnic Serb whose family has a bit of history in that region, going back to what you mentioned earlier about how it looks like the Kosovar Albanians in this case are instigators. Well, first off, they're instigators a lot more often than people give them credit for. But also, the whole timing of this is interesting, especially when you compare it to what happened in that war. This is playing almost exactly the way the Bosnian War played out. Bosnia as a whole populated very slight majority by Muslim Bosniaks as still Slavs. 
They voted to leave in the, uh, leave Yugoslavia as an independent country. It's also 30% uh, Serbs. All, that 30% boycotted the elections. So everyone's saying, oh, it's legitimate. The population voted. And then those Serbs that boycotted split off into their own little uh, uh, wannabe country and started the arguably the worst war of the Balkans. Kosovo, when they're seeing this, what's happening in Serbia with these mirrors, they know all that. And they also know the Serbs are a very easy scapegoat because they're probably the only people in Eastern Europe that actually likes the Russians. They, even uh, the tennis player Novak Djokovic, he got in hot water when his dad posed with a photo of uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, and people are asking, well, where do you, where do you cite, etc. And also most Serbs, if you look at polls, don't actually want to join the European Union. The president, Alexander Vucic, at the moment does. He's about the only person in Belgrade right now and his party uh, that do. And if he wants to keep his people happy, he's not going to jump at the EU membership carrot, so to speak. Perhaps Kosovo, perhaps Germany behind them want him out. Perhaps they want an excuse to create some instability in the region, cause regime change. Get rid of this guy that people call Putin's puppet, even though that's a very uh, gross simplification of the scenario, out of the way and basically whip the Serbs into submission where they don't have a choice if they want to put their country back together to get into the EU. So as you said there, Richard Palmer, our editor-in-chief, has emphasized this in Germany's conquest of the Balkans. Germany's conquest of the Balkans, a little booklet uh, written years ago now. about how the war in Kosovo was powered largely by the United States, but it was caused by and and to the benefit of Germany. Uh, this being, of course, another example of Seagates. Uh, why do people, why does Europe and, and Russia care so much about uh, this Balkan region? Well, it gives access to the Mediterranean Sea to much of Europe's inner core, countries that otherwise wouldn't have access to uh, to the sea or as good access to the sea. Uh, so even though the main theater of conflict between Russia and Europe seems to be, and, and largely is, eastern Ukraine, uh, there there are, I guess I would say, cold wars going on all the time, everywhere. That's one thing I've learned from doing this job and from being involved with the trumpet, is that there's a struggle going on all the time, uh, almost everywhere between between the major powers. And uh, this is a good example of that. So do keep your eye on the Balkans and read Germany's conquest of the Balkans. Now let's go to our fourth of four regions, the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, top stories. Well, on May 31st, the United Arab Emirates left the Combined Maritime Forces, or CMF. That's a naval power block, including a lot of countries in the Middle East, the United States, a lot of countries in in Europe, even a lot of countries in Asia. It's meant to... uh, combat piracy, smuggling, and most of all, Iranian uh, meddling, shall we say, in waterways like the Persian Gulf, meant to secure the freedom for, say, the oil trade in that region. The United States has been doing a very, very poor job of protecting uh, oil, uh, the oil trade from, say, Iranian seizure of ships, including one from the Emirates uh, early, earlier in May. And so the UAE just basically said, we're we're done with it. They didn't give an explanation, but given the context, it's pretty obvious what's rattling their minds. Also on Thursday, Jerusalem held a pride parade with National Security Minister who belongs, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who belongs to the nationalist Jewish power group in the unenviable position of trying to... Uh, make sure the uh, the pride parade which had about 30,000 people uh, not 
uh, get into hot water with the um, more religious Jews that were protesting uh, there. Uh, ben Gavir for himself, uh, he's, again, more religious, but he called um, homosexuals, in this case, as his brothers, and said that Jerusalem is a mosaic of different opinions and saying that he wanted to make sure that uh, not even a hair on the head of the marchers is harmed. So we, we've talked uh, before on this uh, program about the moral decline and uh in the nations of Israel, of course, the state of Israel is one of those nations. And even you have a a uh, self-professed religious Jew protecting a sodomite march in the holy city, which I think goes to show how much things are declining there. And also last Saturday, Iran, uh, or specifically the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Taliban had in Afghanistan had a border skirmish. It's pretty unclear who started it. Two Iranians died and one Taliban fighter died. But it's in the backdrop of Iran accusing Afghanistan of not paying the country water that they owe Iran due to a treaty from decades back. Um, who knows how how this is going to turn out. If you look at videos from the event, it looks like the Taliban were swarming to defend the, the motherland, the war... Uh, thankfully calm down but it just goes to show you what happens when you get islamist regimes in power these are both islamist regimes and they can't get along with each other the trumpet expects uh, more and more uh, radical islam to take over in more states and to cause chaos and if you look at these isolated examples you could just get a foretaste on what kind of chaos you can expect in the rest of the world but this is a good segue into the main story i'd like to talk about today it also involves iran on may 29th Iran claims to have concluded testing what would be its first hypersonic cruise missile. Now, we often talk on the trumpet about Iran's uh, nuclear program and the dangers of their, say, uranium enrichment program, but that's only one side of the coin. It's one thing to have enough uranium to develop a bomb, but you also have to have a delivery system for that bomb. Iran's uh, are already done a lot of work on its um ballistic missile program but with this hypersonic cruise missile it has a, a new toy in its arsenal to uh play with now contrary to what um it may sound a ballistic missiles are also hypersonic as well these these hypersonic cruise missiles don't go as fast per se as uh ballistic missiles can they can still go pretty fast at about the average five times the speed of sound what makes them dangerous is their um, unpredictability. Uh, like other cruise missiles, they hug the ground pretty low so they could evade radar. Um, they also have uh, different uh, maneuverability capabilities, like changing tra tra trajectory mid-flight, which makes them a lot harder to intercept than, say, your traditional ICBM. There are still a lot of unknowns with uh, these missiles. We basically have the uh, Iranian press releases to go by and not much else. Um, a lot of times countries will brag they have this hypersonic technology like um, Russia, for example. And it turns out it's not the same, say, as uh, technology as what America's developed, which is why Ukraine's been able to shoot them down. But especially with these rogue regimes like Iran... When they say they had this kinds of technology and they claim, you know, it can invade all the radar uh, defense systems, uh, it's a, a game up from what we've had before, maybe they're gloating, maybe not. All we know is that unlike, say, some other countries, they are most likely going to use them when they have a chance. North Korea got into some similar hot water uh, 
couple of years ago when they claimed to have hypersonic technology. People were looking at it and saying, well, from what they've shown us, it doesn't look like it's state of the art. But at the same time, it's North Korea. Do we want to wait and find out? Iran's in the same boat and even more so because of their religious leanings, because they uh, see it as their prerogative to wipe Israel off the map or to start global chaos so their version of the Messiah can come back. Um, a prophecy we go to over and over again on the trumpet is Matthew 24, verses 21 to 22, talks about right before the return of Christ, um, chaos in this world where if it wasn't stopped, not a not a single person would be left alive. Uh, mankind wasn't able to do that until weapons of mass destruction, including and especially nuclear weapons, were developed. You combine that with another prophecy in Daniel 11, verse 40, which talks about the king of the south, or Iran, as we've talked about often on this show, pushing against Europe being the catalyst for this. And you put these two trends together, Iran and uh, and the nuclear weapons program, and then pushing and provoking with it. And you can see we're getting closer than ever to the fulfillment of Matthew 24. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Joe Fleury, has written a booklet about that called Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. Talks about Iran's nuclear program and Matthew 24 and, so, and uh, some other things as well, if our listeners want to get more information on that. The Trumpet and previously watched Jerusalem have repeatedly emphasized the rise of Iran, and it has continued to rise. It has continued to develop those nuclear warheads and, as you're emphasizing today, the delivery systems for them. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, Anatolia, Seagates, Erdogan, and the elections in the nation of Turkey. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. I'm your host, Philip Nice, with Trumpet authors Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Mihailo Zekic. Elections in Turkey is the subject of our panel discussion. Mihailo Zekic, what was it that we just heard there to lead off our last segment? Well, that was the melodious voice of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. On Sunday, Turkey just concluded its second round of presidential elections, and Erdogan of the Conservative Justice and Development Party won about 52% to the 48% of Kemal Kilishtarolu, who was the Republican People's Party's uh, candidate. I think this is perhaps the most invested the rest of the world has been in a Turkish election. Uh, I think in the West, Erdogan is not popular, really. Uh, he is almost single-handedly... So, so Kemal Ataturk, the kind of the founding father of modern Turkey, set up Turkey to be kind of like a modern European secular state. The idea was it would be like France. You, know, you Most people in France, at least nominally, are Catholic, but it's not a Catholic government. Uh, there are no laws saying you have to go to church on Sunday or you have to take mass or any of these things. And so then the idea was that Ataturk would bring that same European concept to Turkey. And 
Turkey would be a, a European secular democracy where most of the people happen to be Muslim. And Erdogan has a fundamentally different vision for the country. And it's a vision, I think, shared by a lot of Turks. And so he's done a, a, a lot of work to dismantle that. And so with this election, though, you, you had what looked like the very real possibility that he would be defeated. You had an earthquake coming happen in the run up to the election. Uh, Erdogan himself came to power after a previous leader mishandled uh, an earthquake response. And he looked like he was doing something similar. It looked like it was denting his popularity. His rival, according to the polls, looked like he could well win. And then he didn't. We had the first round of the election where Erdogan came with just a few fractions of a percentage point away from winning outright. There was a rerun, uh, which he has now won. And it kind of cements Turkey in this uh, Islamist direction. And I think from an international international point of view, it, it, it shows that this kind of neo-Ottoman Turkey that Erdogan is pursuing is here to stay, where this turning his back on a secular, the idea of a secular state has massive foreign policy implications as well. Because I think he likes the idea of Turkey as the successor to the Ottoman Empire, um, as a Muslim state that leads and influences a host of other Muslim states. So this has led Erdogan to become more involved in Syria. It's led him to form relationships and, and military bases, even with, with Sudan, to, break, to rapidly expand the army. Um, I think it's the United Arab Emirates. He almost immediately announced a massive trade deal with. Uh, and so he's now trying to use Islam to spread Turkish influence across the Middle East. And it's not just uh, him himself doing it, per se. We often talk about him eroding democratic institutions. He's amassed a lot more power for himself, that sort of thing. But the people, he gener has pretty broad popular support within Turkey. I mean, even you go back to the uh, first round of elections, uh, he won 49.5%. Uh, people were looking at his elections and saying, okay, there was unbiased media coverage, there was an unlevel playing field against the opposition. But if he wanted to rig the election, it wouldn't take much to just rig it 0.6% more. Uh, so the indication is he has pretty good popular support among the Turkish population. And also, even though, they, like Mr. Palmer mentioned, most of the population is Muslim. For most of the Republic of Turkey's history, you were looked down upon if you were considered a fundamentalist. If you were a young conservative Turkish woman who wore her hijab in public, you were not allowed to go to university with wearing that hijab on. Erdogan came in and said, we're not going to discriminate based on religion. If you want to be a religious Turk, you can go to school. You can wear your hijab. That resonated with a lot of people that didn't like militant secularism per se. So with about three minutes left uh, to the sh to the show, what's the, what's the main thing we need to be looking at in this election and with Erdogan in particular? And what I think is is we've talked about Bible prophecy talks about Turkey being a partner for Europe, and you go back to the Ottoman Empire, World War One, Turkey was a massive partner for for Kaiser Wilhelm and and, and Germany, and that was kind of they were Turkey was kind of the main client for Germany for spreading German influence across the Middle East. And I think a neo-Ottoman style of, uh, of of Turkey presents a similar opportunity, a partner that Germany has worked with before, can continue to work with uh, in spreading their influence across the Middle East. So I think that's one important, uh, important part of it. I think the other place you could look at is just the betrayal of the nations of Israel. I mean, Kilish Darolu, he's a, uh, a Kemalist, as we talked about. He's a secularist. 
we talk often in this program with prophecies like in the book of Obadiah, like Psalm 83, about the Turks betraying uh, the Israelite peoples, including the Jewish people in the Middle East. They want to wipe out the name of Israel from remembrance. Secular Kamalists don't really care that much about the name of Israel. To them, that's all religious stuff. Who cares what the religious people are doing? We're going to focus on building our country. The Ottoman Empire used to control Jerusalem. What happens there is really important to him and to his constituents. And so we can expect him, perhaps these uh, the Israelite peoples will start trusting him more somehow, but we can't expect him to drop his uh, imperialist visions for uh, Turkey and for Jerusalem specifically. I say, yeah, that's one, definitely one thing um, from the Anglo-American perspective that the Americans need to watch out for is that, that Biden's been very supportive of uh, Erdogan's re-election, uh, he, although Biden normally does not like to call attention to rigged elections for other reasons. Uh, but he is trying to sell uh, a number of F-16s to Turkey, almost in a, quo, a quid pro quo for Turkey supporting Sweden's NATO bid. Uh, Turkey's one of the more pro-Russian members of NATO, and because you have vetoes for new members, he's trying to like kind of wine and dine him, get Sweden into into NATO. But it is something is that we've highlighted before is that like within you've viewed like NATO as like this anti-Russian alliance, but Turkey and Germany are definitely the two that are kind of 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 two minds uh, to Russia. And and there's specific prophecies about both uh, betraying <laughs> American interest, and so you can definitely see that um, kind of already is that they're they're currently part of this alliance on the against the Ukraine war, but they definitely have some Russian sympathies as well. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, jump in and quickly discuss the way you know as as Andrew said, there Erdogan's victory is also a pretty significant victory for Russia and for Vladimir Putin as he continues to prosecute the war. On Ukraine. Turkey, of course, is this immensely powerful player in the Middle East and Europe and Asia, since it sits right at the crossroads, the uh, intersection of all three. It's also a NATO member, as was mentioned. And Erdogan has long used his power at the helm of Turkey to kind of craftily, um, you know, tread a delicate tightrope, sometimes playing one side off the other to further his interests. And he has often worked with Putin. You know, they're strange bedfellows in a way, and, and sometimes they are rivals. But Erdogan has bought major weapon systems from Russia. He has refused to sanction Russia, while most of the Western world is. He has used his uh, NATO power, as Andrew just said there, to prevent Sweden from joining NATO. So all of that was very good news for Putin, because of course, a stronger NATO is just anathema to Russia. But then this opposition candidate came along, and he promised to end Turkey's block on Sweden joining NATO and to repair Turkey's tarnished human rights record and to make it more secular and, and just to kind of put Turkey back on track to democracy and to lean more toward Europe. So all of that was going to be horrendous for Putin. But of course, Erdogan won again, another five years. And Putin was just elated at this news. He was among the first to call Erdogan and congratulate him. Putin even called Erdogan his, quote, dear friend during this phone call. So, you know, Erdogan has restricted the, the Russian Navy from passing through the uh, the sea gates there, the Turkish Straits. But even still, this Erdogan victory was, for the most part, also a Putin victory. 
So look for uh, Prophesied Prince of Russia, as you mentioned earlier in the segment. Uh, our listeners can get that at thetrumpet.com slash literature. And then also Exiled Journalist, Beware Turkey's Authoritarian Shift. Uh, that's an article title, Exiled Journalist, Beware Turkey's Authoritarian Shift. You can see that in the show notes. That is our hour for today. I'm Philip Nice, and we welcome you to email us your thoughts. As always, letters at thetrumpet.com. We've been hearing from you. We appreciate that. Thanks to our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and uh, Mihailo Zekic. And thanks to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. Thank you, most of all, for joining us on Trumpet Hour. <laughs> <laughs>